You're listening to the Empowering Lives Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Psychology at Help University, the University of Achievers. We'll be bringing you conversations with renowned psychologists and other health professionals that discuss a wide range of topics on mental health, psychology, and well-being. The Empowering Lives Podcast comes to you from the biggest psychology department in the whole of Malaysia. As we talk about the issues that matter to you most, stay tuned to this global podcast as we empower you to take away valuable insights and lessons that can improve your emotional health and well-being today. Hello and welcome to the Empowering Lives podcast wherever you're listening from. My name is Sandy Clark and recently I interviewed Dr. William Miller on motivational interviewing which is a counselling approach he developed with Dr. Stephen Rolnick that helps people to resolve ambivalent feelings and insecurities to find the motivation they need to change their behaviour. A core principle of MI is that therapists resist the writing reflex, which is to say that therapists act as guides rather than directors of clients, ensuring respect of clients' agency and autonomy and their ability to decide the kind of change they want to see in their lives rather than being coerced or compelled to change by the therapist. Dr. Miller is Emeritus Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. He's recognised as one of the world's most highly cited researchers, having published over 400 scientific articles and chapters, as well as 60 books. Dr. Miller is well known for his work on developing effective treatments for people with alcohol and substance problems, and MI has expanded over the years to be applied across a range of areas spanning from alcohol use to organisational leadership and sports performance. I began the interview with Dr. Miller by asking him where motivational interviewing came from and how it works to affect change. How it happened is, a, is an interesting story because my first sabbatical leave was in Norway and I went to work at an alcoholism hospital there uh, and I didn't go with any idea about something like motivational interviewing. Uh, in fact, I was going to teach a behavioral approach to treating alcohol problems, but the director of the clinic asked me to meet with the psychologist there. And he said, just, you know, just discussions or, you know, are you willing to do that? I said, sure. And uh, so I was teaching them both behavioral methods and uh, Rogerian method of listening well to patients. And they wanted me to show them what it looks like. Uh, And so they would role play patients that they were seeing uh, that they found particularly challenging or resistant or defensive or whatever. And then say, just, you know, show us what you would do. Uh, And so I began demonstrating what I would do. And they did something my American students rarely did, which is they would interrupt me. They would say, no, wait wait a minute. No, you asked a question of the patient, but you could have asked many questions. Why did you ask that question? Or you reflected something the patient said. Why did you reflect that particular thing? And they caused me to verbalize some decision rules that I was was apparently using, but was not conscious of. And they had to do with arranging the conversation so that it's the patient and not me who's making the arguments for change. 
and together we began to formulate those decision rules. It resulted in the very first paper describing this approach in 1983. I didn't really think I'd ever hear much more about it, but instead it took over my life. When I was uh, doing the training on the psychwire.com course, uh, this was the foundational motivational interviewing course, which I would highly recommend uh, anyone who's training currently. One of the things I found fascinating was how uh, motivational interviewing borrows from the sort of core tenets of Rogerian approach, person-centered approach, and combines that with placing the client's autonomy and um, agency front and center of, of the therapeutic process. And foundational to that process is, uh, from the therapist's perspective, is the importance of empathy. And I think that empathy is a word that we hear quite often. We hear it in therapy. We hear it in leadership. I think Google has said that empathy is going to be the most important leadership skill over the next 10 years. I think it's, it's a word that's often thrown around without really understanding what it means. Can you yes. share your thoughts on what does effective, accurate empathy look like? Yeah, well, we, we mean something very particular by it, as, as Carl Rogers did, because the word empathy itself can have lots of meanings. It can I mean all of us have some degree of empathy. In other words, feeling for other people or anticipating what other people are going to feel or say. But we mean a particular skill, which is the ability to understand what people are meaning and to reflect that meaning back to them. Uh, if you're just sitting there understanding, it doesn't do them very much good. Um, and so the ability to do what we call reflective listening of offering people your understanding at the moment of what they are meaning uh, is, is the skill that Rogers and his students formulated in the 1950s, really. And it's measurable, it's learnable, uh, observable. Coders can listen to a, a sample of it and reliably rate the quality of the reflective listening. And it's related to outcome. Uh, it is one of the clinical skills most predictive of clients getting better. My most recent book is on what is it about therapists that makes them better or worse in terms of their effectiveness in treatment using allegedly the same treatment manual or methods. There are big differences among therapists in clients' outcomes. One of the biggest predictors is this skill of accurate empathy. And it goes right back to Rogers and Truex and Karkoff and the people describing this back in the 50s and 60s. It's something I think that Bruce Wampold and his Common Factors research has shown that empathy is one of the, the core skills, uh, regardless of therapeutic approach that you might take. And I think he suggested that if you have these core qualities, then the difference between the actual approaches, you know, they diminish in terms of their importance in effective therapy. What counts is the relationship between the, the therapist and the client. And in your 1983 paper, you talk about this idea of, from the perspective of treating addictions or alcoholism, you know, if you try to force change or if you try to be the, the expert in the room uh, convincing that someone should change their behavior, then that's not going to work. It's, they're actually going to argue against why they should change. Is, is that right? And, and so they should. I mean, in fact, we are not the expert in the room when it comes to the other person. They have a lifetime of experience 
with themselves. And so the, you need their expertise as well as your own to think about how change is going to fit into this lifestyle. But yeah, no, my, my thinking is very much along the same lines as Bruce uh, Wampold. And this, our, our book on effective psychotherapists this year, we were looking for what are those therapeutic factors? I, I don't call them common factors because they're not all that common, actually. They're certainly not universal. And therapists differ widely in, the, in their skill and empathy, for example. And sometimes they're called nonspecific factors, but that just means we didn't do our homework because these are specifiable, measurable, teachable, learnable, you know, so they're not mysterious things. Uh, you can see them happening in treatment. You can measure them. You can link it to outcomes. Um, and Bruce and we uh, both tend to call them therapeutic factors. Uh, and they're quite important. Uh, I had a big lesson in the lack of differences among apparently different treatments in a study called Project Match, where we came up with three treatments just as different as we could imagine them. A 12-step tre treatment, cognitive behavioral treatment, and motivational interview. And they finished dead even, had precisely the same outcome. But therapists had different outcomes. Uh, and so it was an early hint of the very same thing that we're looking at now. That, uh, as Bruce says, the particular brand of therapy or the particular manual you're using has less impact than the therapeutic relationship does. Now, for me, it's both and because I, mean, I, I can't accept that it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, and what Bruce actually says is differences among bona fide treatments are not large, but it does make a difference what you do when you go into the room. And at the same time, schools of psych psychotherapy don't have very different outcomes on average. And on average, hides the problem or the, the interesting issue that there are big differences among therapists. So really, when you talk about therapeutic approach, you know, some people might say, well, CBT is useful or not useful for this or ACT or um, even motivational interviewing. But really, it comes down to how it's done and how the therapist enters into the, the, the relationship with the client. And, and one of, the, one of the, the, the really striking things that stood out to me in, in the training was that there seems to be an explicit avoidance of, of confrontation in motivational interviewing toward the client. And I know that some other approaches might actually make use of challenging or confronting a client's narrative or perspective uh, in order to give them an idea of, of unhelpful thinking or unhelpful behaviors. But in motivational interviewing, there's a kind of rolling with that resistance to help to mm -hmm. evoke change. What effect does that have in therapy and how does it compare to maybe some other approaches or, or ways of doing therapy that include confrontation? What am I lacks in particular is domination. Mm -hmm. So the, the attempt to dominate control, make people do things, which simply doesn't work very well. I mean, the, the literature on confrontation in addiction treatment is uniformly negative. I mean, it's not a single positive clinical trial anywhere. Um, and, and that's our finding with MI research too, that confrontational styles just don't tend to work very well. And if you think about yourself, you realize that. I mean, most, most people don't like being told what's wrong with them and what they should do differently. You just, we don't receive it well as human beings, you know. 
there's an interesting article on an evolutionary explanation of motivational interviewing, uh, saying that power relationships are there in all of the mammals, certainly, and in, in wolves and dogs and so forth. There are the clear rules by which you establish you're the leader of the pack, but also the leader of the pack doesn't kill number two. That would not be good for the species either. And so there are ways in which you signal, okay, you win. And for a wolf, it, it's throwing its head back and opening up its throat, which would allow the dominant wolf to tear their throat out. And it doesn't, it doesn't happen. What this guy observes is, you know, in motivational interviewing, you seem to lead by yielding. You seem to lead by saying you're in charge, which is actually the truth also. And when you try to say, no, I'm in charge and here's what you're going to do, people just don't respond very well to that. It's just not, it's not built into human nature uh, to respond warmly to somebody trying to dominate you. And so it, it's rather than confrontation, because that can mean different things. I, I did have a, someone in a workshop once say to me, you know, actually, you're very confrontational. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, well, when someone's talking to you, they come face to face with what they're doing and, and what's happening. And they look in the mirror <laughs> and see themselves. Well, that's a goal of motivation for people to come face to face, which is what confront means, come face to face with themselves, not to get in somebody's face. It doesn't work particularly well, but to help them look in the mirror in a safe environment uh, and see what's there and decide what they want to do about it. That's pretty much what Rogers was doing, too. I do think Rogers was much more directional than he believed. He first called himself non-directive, and then he gave that term up uh, and was focusing more on client-centered. But Truex, one of his students, studied Roger's own counseling and found he didn't, he didn't respond randomly. He didn't reflect things randomly. He was much more likely to come alive and reflect something when certain kinds of things were being said, like self-esteem, for example, and other things he would just kind of let them go. So... And in fact, if you think about it, reflecting randomly would be bizarre. Uh, and so everybody's making some kind of decisions about what's important here that I'm hearing. What should I reflect? What should I ask? What should I affirm? But often we're not very conscious of how we're making those choices. In motivational living, we have specific guidelines for what to reflect preferentially, what to ask preferentially what to put into summaries preferentially, because it makes a difference. And that's where I would imagine active listening really comes into play, because like you say, you're not reflecting everything and you're choosing what would be most uh, beneficial to the client in terms of what you're handing back to them. And I quite like this metaphor of, you know, collecting bouquets of, of this sort of change mm -hmm. Um, for, for clients to hand them back uh, in a way that they can then take that on as part of the process of change. And motivational in interviewing does have this emphasis on shifting the balance between what's known as sustained talk and change talk. Um, mm -hmm. Can you explain what those two terms mean? And are there times when therapists get caught up in their client's sustained talk? And if so, how does that affect the therapy? And, and how can therapists sort of avoid that pitfall? 
Well, one thing we learned is it, it matters what I say as a therapist, but it matters even more what the client says. And outcomes are predictable from the balance of change talk, which is the client saying things that essentially argue for change, and its opposite, sustained talk, which is the client saying things that move away from change. And clinically, you can feel those. We have categories of change talk and so forth to make it more specific. But basically, the more the client argues for change and the less they argue against it, the more likely they are to actually change. Now, we could say, well, I knew that. I mean, motivated clients tend to get better and unmotivated clients don't, except we also have very clear experimental evidence that that balance of how much the person is arguing for versus against change is under the influence of the therapist. You can drive it up and down, that, that ratio. So it also matters what I'm saying. It also matters what the therapist is saying, that influences whether the client is going to be making arguments for change or against them. And so we, we have methods in motivational interviewing to do what we call cultivating change talk. It's inviting the person to, to give us change talk, reflecting it, responding to it in a way that you're likely to get more change talk. And then in summaries, pulling the change talk together in those bouquets that you're talking about. So it's, it's trying to stay with the change talk as much as possible, which is what people tend not to do when they're ambivalent. When you're ambivalent, you tend to think of a reason to change, and then you tend to think of a reason why you don't want to change. And then you stop thinking about it because it's kind of unpleasant. And this helps people in a very supportive, safe environment to keep looking at their change talk. The other thing we, we do is what's called softening sustained talk responding to it in a way that doesn't increase it. One of the easiest ways to, to increase sustained talk is to argue with it, is to tell people they're wrong, then to argue back, which is giving you more sustained talk. So there you see this dance between the, the interviewer and the person or the client and how it influences what comes out of the client's mouth. And that matters, that's important. Now, depending on how you're trained as the therapist, you might be trained that what you should really be paying attention to is sustained talk. That when, when you hear the person beginning to be reluctant, then you need to get in there and pay a lot of attention to that and, and work with it and so forth. And if what you do there increases the sustained talk, for example, if you just reflect all the sustained talk, you're likely to hear more and more and more of it. So it matters. I, I uh, coached a therapist a couple of years ago who had been trained that what she needed to explore was as much of the negativity as she could find in people, that all of their angry and sad and painful feelings, those were the things that really needed to be explored. Well, guess what? Her clients were getting more angry and sad and, and depressed uh, and fearful, you know. Because the more you get people to talk about those things, the more that happens. We don't ignore them at all, but we respond in a way that doesn't try to dominate and doesn't exacerbate the, the issue. And some therapeutic practices sort of cuddle, uh, sustained talk, if you will, uh, and just explore and explore and explore and explore, argue, argue, argue with it. And it just doesn't help. So we've got a fair amount of data behind all of these pieces of the chain that 
It matters what you do as a therapist. It influences what the client says. And what the client says influences change. I, I suppose that when you're starting out as a, a new therapist, particularly, and I know this from personal experience, that you can, like you say, cuddle the sustained talk unintentionally through, uh, I, I think there's a, a concept in, in Buddhism, it's sort of known as a idiot compassion. And it's this idea that, you know, you're, you're too nice, you're too empathetic to the point where you're not really helping. So for example, I, I can recall early sessions when I, when I started counseling and someone would say, you know, I'm just, I'm so stuck and I'm so depressed and, and I find it difficult to get motivated. And I would sort of stay there with them and say, yeah, it's very difficult. And I can imagine yeah. it's, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning and, and all this stuff. And, and looking back, you can see that essentially what you're doing is you're sort of getting into the hole with the client without That's right. of, of kind of getting your way out. And I think that one of the things, and this transitions to my next question, one of the things that clients would say in, in that case is they might get to the point where they say, okay, what should I do? Tell me what I should do. I remember when the first time a client asked me that, there was sort of warning bells going off in my head, right? Because when you're doing Oh, good, good. There's this kind of don't give direct advice. It's not your life. You're you're not uh, in charge of this person's um, decision-making. But motivational interviewing takes an interesting uh, perspective on this because while it seems to agree with the idea that you're not giving direct life advice to clients, when you are asked, you're not shying away from the question either. So you're, you're nope. giving maybe them, you're maybe giving them some options or some uh, suggestions that they can then incorporate into their idea of change. Yes, we do. We do offer advice. That's a misconception about MI that mm-hmm. that you never give advice. Now, I'm certainly inclined to ask first about the person's own ideas. What you know? What have you thought of? Or what have you tried? You know, so that's that's useful. But we do offer advice. We do it in a particular way. We first ask permission. So, I mean, giving people unwanted advice is not particularly helpful. We don't like receiving unwanted advice, most people. Uh, So you have a context where you have permission. One way of getting permission is the person asks you, well, how could I do this? So that's one kind of permission. You can ask for permission. Would it be all right if, if I told you some things that other people I've worked with have done that have worked for them? I don't know if they'll make sense for you or not. What I just said there is important also. It's honoring autonomy. It's fine to disagree. You know, you're the expert on you is the implicit message there. And the another thing we've learned to do is not give one piece of advice, but to offer several. So the variety of things you could do here, let me just tell you about them. Some that occur to me. And you tell me which of these might make the most sense to you. Now you've changed the mental set. The normal mental set when you make a suggestion to somebody is for them to tell you what's wrong with it. It's just natural human ambivalence. But you're saying, no, here are five ideas. Pick a card, any card, you know, just which of these make the most sense to you? That's a different mental set of them. I'm now listening to these and thinking, now which of these could I do? Or which of these sound who I think is right. And so that's a different evaluative mode than here's my idea, now tell me what's wrong with it. it is, as you say, when, when you offer direct advice, there is that sort of resistance and pushback. And, and, and quite often I've heard clients say, you know, unprompted, they'll say something like, 
I know what I need to do. I know what I need to put in place. You know, I, I just can't, or I, I struggle to, to make that first step. And uh, I mean, you've mentioned ambivalence a few times in, in this discussion. Can you, can you just uh, elaborate on what that means and how that sort of shows up for the client in terms of their inability at that point to consider change? Yeah, that's my next book coming out uh, November 6th, I think, on ambivalence, which is this interesting human phenomenon of simultaneously feeling at least two different ways. And they're both true, you know. I want it and I don't want it at the same time. And it's not like only one of those is true. What's the truth is I want it and I don't want it. Now, both things are true. And that's just, a, that's, there's nothing pathological about that. That's perfectly normal. In fact, in the trans-theoretical model of change, it's a step toward change to become ambivalent, to think, well, maybe I should, I don't know. You know kind of go back and forth with that. So it, it is a universal human phenomenon. But if you approach it as a therapist by arguing for one side, there's a very predictable outcome, which is the person will respond with the other side. And in the addiction field, we've then labeled that denial or some kind of pathological defensiveness. It's not. It's just the way people respond when they feel two ways about something and you tell them one way is the right way. So, well, I don't know. Uh, and, and so ambivalence is that simultaneous experience of things that are contradictory. I, I may hold uh, for, I do hold for one of my children, hope and despair at the same moment, at the same time. And I don't have to choose which one of those is right. Both of them are true. So you don't even always have to resolve your ambivalence. Sometimes you just live with your ambivalence. And in Buddhism, that makes all kinds of sense. That, that's, that's reality. I mean, that's just, you live with that. You know, that's how it is. But sometimes, usually when you're in a helping relationship in particular, you are trying to help people resolve ambivalence in a particular direction, usually because that's what they ask you to do. But then if you push in that direction, you'll get resistance. Now, we took that term apart also and said, oh, what does that mean? Well, what, one thing we meant by it was sustained talk. It's the person arguing to not change. But that's perfectly normal. That's just half of ambivalence. So there's nothing strange about that. Is there anything else? Well, yeah, there is. And the other thing that we identified, it, we call discord, which is discomfort in our relationship, in the working alliance. Is the client saying, you're stepping on my foot. We're not dancing well together here. And those sent those statements tend to have you in them. So whereas I, I don't want to stop smoking, that's sustained talk. You can't make me. <laughs> that's sustained talk. Or that's, uh, that's discord. You, know? you don't understand how hard this is for me. What do you know? Did you ever use drugs? You know, who are you to tell me? It's got those you statements in them that are just signals that, hmm, there's discomfort now in how I'm relating to this person. Both of them are signals to not do more of what you just did. Another good learning, uh, which is the opposite of what addiction counselors were taught. When you hear resistance, now you push. And if you hear more resistance, you push more. No. That's the client telling you, why don't you try something different? Why don't you try a little different way of going about things? What you describe in terms of 
battling the resistance feels like a bit of a, a tug of war. You know, the, the client's pulling on one end and, you, and you're trying to kind of pull them over to your side. But the, yep. the empathy is more about sort of dropping your end of the rope and, and sort of leaning into the, the client in that sense. And I, I know that a lot of therapists might say something like the, the client is being resistant to therapy. And, and I suppose at some point we, we all have that idea that clients should be coming in willing to change, uh, you know, <laughs> eager to learn, uh, you know, ready to go out the door and, and, and really put that into action. And it's almost like having the, I've actually had clients apologize to me because they haven't been the quote unquote ideal client. And when I've said to them, well, what does that mean to, to be the ideal client? Well, somebody who comes in and, and does the work and someone who gets over their problem. And I, th I think part of it as well, and maybe to get your thoughts on this, that there seems to be an idea that therapy should take a, a specific length of time. So it might be six sessions, 12 sessions and so on. And in my experience, some clients have came in with that idea that, okay, by the time I reach six sessions or whatever, then my problem should be solved. And if I don't solve them, then somehow there's something wrong with me there. Which is a blaming thing. Yeah. Yeah. We, in addiction treatment, we blame people for not getting better. We blame people for not being motivated instead of helping to motivate them. In fact, we're doing the wrong things to motivate them. Then we blame them for being offensive. Uh, it, I have a role in this. I mean, resistance requires two people. It, it is like a tug of war. You know? Nobody stands alone on the beach and resists. It simply doesn't happen. There has to be another party there that, that is part of it, which means my role is important. My, what I'm doing is contributing. If the client is throwing at me a lot of resistance, there's something I'm doing that contributes to that and maintains it. And that means there's also something I can do to begin to soften that, to change it. Um, but the word resistance doesn't take much therapist responsibility for it. It kind of blames the client for it, either because they're doing it on purpose and being difficult, or it's their pathology. It's something, something wrong with them. And that's why they're resisting. Here I am doing my best to be a good therapist and help this person. And what do they do? They resist me. You know. I think there's a kind of ambivalence as well in that respect when you're a therapist starting out. Um, there is this sense of, you know, a sort of self-doubt, you know, I want to do a good job for the client, but I, I don't know if I'm capable at this point. And, and certainly I, I think that leads to a sort of over-leaning toward trying too hard as the therapist to, to evoke change. Because if you're not evoking change, uh, or bringing about changing your client quickly enough, then that can show up as, and again, maybe it's a, a sort of self-blame thing, as you mentioned, uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I'm not doing my job as a therapist. Whereas if you just kind of stop and say, okay, where are we at in this relationship here? How are things between me and the client? Let's check in. Then maybe that resistance starts to lessen because you're making it more about the client and less about the problem to be solved. I think the acceptance and commitment therapy uh, co-developer, Kelly Wilson, he has a very nice saying. He said that it's important to treat your clients like sunsets rather than math problems to be solved. And I think that's mm -hmm. a good way to put it. Well, and there's, there's a relationship to me with meditative practice as well. Mm. When, you, when you practice meditation, you're intensely concentrating 
but leaving out all the distractions. So other thoughts and stuff that come in, you just, you don't follow them. You're just focused on what you're focusing on. And I realized doing motivational interviewing or, or reflective listening is a lot like that. It's, there's nothing else in my world except this other person that I'm sitting with. And the judgment goes away. I, I, I don't have to decide that was a good thing or a bad thing or whatever. I'm really listening and trying to understand the person's perspective and reflect that back to them and then help it to move in a, in a helpful direction. But that same kind of contemplative practice, which teaches you acceptance, which teaches you empathy, is also the same kind of concentration without judgment that is the very heart of what we're doing, uh, either in, in a person-centered approach, like Rogers thought, or in motivational interviewing, 80% of which is Carl Rogers. Maybe my, my second last question, uh, Dr. Miller, would be fairly straightforward in terms of what would people expect by coming to see a, a therapist who's um, practicing motivational interviewing? Because I get the sense that people would hear the term motivational and think that it's maybe something that's it's almost like a life coach or something that this uh -huh. will really cheerlead them on to change. But as you mentioned in your paper, that motivation refers more to an interpersonal process rather than a personality trait. I mean, our motivation does arise in relationships. I mean, that's just how it how it happens normally. And this is one particular kind of relationship. What you what you would expect first of all is to be listened to well to be sitting with someone who's really making an effort and a good effort to understand how you see things and how you perceive things and what you're experiencing and behaving in a way that says that, that matters, what you're experiencing. And I, I want to understand that. That's not all that they do. But if that's not there, this is not a person doing motivational interview. And interested in your own uh, thoughts about change, about, you know, what, why would you want to do that? You know, how, how do you think you might go about it? You know, well, why is it important? Is that, is it really, is this really important to you? And why is that? And so instead of telling you why you should do it, instead of giving you the reasons, instead of expressing how important it is, the person will be asking and listening about why it's important to you. Uh, and why it matters to you and how you might go about it. Uh, and you're a very active partner in that process. So you're not going to a dispenser. <laughs> you're not going to someone who's, who dispenses uh, advice and wisdom and so forth. It's your own wisdom that's actively engaged in the healing process. That essence of uh, listening well really shows up in the, the sessions that are demonstrated in the foundational training and there's a real um there's a real emphasis on having that connection with the client really listening to them in a sense that understands from their perspective and understands you know why that change is important to them as you say rather than um you know the sort of vending machine of, of suggestions or or um mm -hmm. advice giving and, and i think that having watched the the sort of full sessions in the training you can see that even if clients start off by being ambivalent or even resistant to any kind of change it's almost as if once they get a sense that you're on their side and that 
you're really interested in change from their perspective, not yours, then they kind of start to open up to this idea that, oh, this person's not here to, to lecture me or to force their views on me. They're really interested. In, and it reminds me of, of good school teachers when I think back. Um, mm-hmm. well, the kind of teachers who you know, maybe just throw stuff at you, expect you to learn, uh, follow the rules, as opposed to the teachers who were very engaging and brought the subject to life and, and really gave you a sense of why that mattered to you. And in, in, in that respect, you tended to flourish in that subject where the importance of it to you was highlighted and therefore you were more invested. And I think that's the, the same kind of idea with the therapy. And maybe just on my last question, Dr. Miller, what do you think the future has in store for motivational interviewing and where would you like to see it evolve if it has anywhere uh, to go in that respect? I feel very detached from the outcomes. Uh, each of our three editions so far, two and three were very different from the preceding edition. We have no idea what it was gonna look like. And so this, this is a, an emerging, evolving method. And so I, I honestly don't know what will be happening 10 years from now with motivational interviewing. And it's been a lot of surprises for me. I, as I said early, I had no idea this was going to go into healthcare uh, and social work and leadership and education uh, and, and dentistry and uh, mediation and legal consultation and financial planning and just you know, all sorts of fields where people have found this and said, oh, yeah, this is the way I want to do my work. This is how I want to do it. It's a way of doing what else you do. And that's kind of something I've come to with motivational interviewing. We're not talking about, certainly not talking about a school of psychotherapy. We don't have a theory of pathology. We don't have a theory of personality. It's a way of being with people. And I say, it's a way of doing what else you do. If you're a diabetes educator, it's a way of doing diabetes education. If you're a teacher, it's a way of teaching. If you're a leader, it's a way of leading. If you're a behavior therapist, it's a way of doing behavior therapy. Uh, And the way you do it matters. And I think those same eight characteristics that we found of more effective therapists are also more effective teachers and more effective doctors and more effective coaches and anybody in a kind of interpersonal influencing position, these same qualities seem to carry over. Uh, and it's interesting what you said, because one of the first things we often do in training people to do motivational interviewing, and sometimes in, in teaching motivational interviewing, is to say, no, remember your favorite teacher. Who was the person in whose class you were really motivated? in whose class you flourished, uh, in whose class you learned. And what was it about that teacher? And the things that people come up with are the heart of motivational interviewing. Uh, it's not they slap me around and they, you know, anything like that. It's they listened to me. They were interested in me. You know? They saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. They showed me possibilities, you know, and, and all of that is the same heart uh, of motivational interviewing. It's a way of being while you're doing what you're doing. And in that way, it fits into any kind of 
therapy approach, whether it be CBT or ACT or any other kind of approach. It's more the, like you say, the heart of it. And as you were speaking there, it reminded me of when I was at school. I, I have failed maths when I was in high school, but I excelled in physics. And my math teacher couldn't figure that out because he didn't think I was very good at math. And um, looking back, it was the difference in the teaching styles because my physics teacher, he really brought the, the subject matter to life and presented it in such a way that, you know, you, you could see the importance of it. You can see why you would want to be engaged in it. And he was very good at encouraging his students. So, for example, I remember one of the classes I said to him, Look, I'm not very good at math. Like, I, I probably won't be able to get these equations learned and so on. And he said, no, your, your theory is very good. You just need to believe in yourself in terms of doing the work. And he said, because you understand the theory very well. So you just need to, and we did like after class lessons with a, a bunch of other students. And just having that sense of belief that you could change, you weren't defined by your preconceived notions about your, you know, whatever limitations you might have. Uh, you were able to sort of thrive and flourish. And, uh, and and that's something that always sticks in my mind. So I suppose in therapy, it's really about how you are with the client that, that really makes a difference. Yes. Yeah. Mm. We, in, in some early studies, we did naive things like, which is more effective to do behavior therapy or motivational interviewing? You know? uh, and the answer is both, you know? I mean, they, when we did put them into a horse race, they finished dead even, you know, so it's not like one of these is superior method and you always use that one. But we began to realize actually this is a way of doing behavior therapy or that this is not something that's meant to compete with other forms of treatment, whether it be meditation or medication or, or behavior therapy or whatever it is. It, it's meant to help people do that better in a way that engages the people they're working with. Um, so we've learned a lot. It's going on 40 years now. And as I mentioned in our chat before the, the podcast started, um, it's certainly motivational interviewing is certainly something that's growing here in, in Malaysia in terms of interest. and, and Which uh, just amazes me, by uh, the way. I might give a shout out to my brother-in-law, David, because he uh, has been quite a champion of, of motivational interviewing and giving talks and and uh, and sharing some ideas and it was him who got me interested in, in motivational interviewing and he he works within the area of addiction and, and I think he can recognize the importance of of motivational interviewing in, in that area and um, so thank you very much for taking the time to, to do this interview and also um, for the courses on psychwire.com which again I would highly recommend to any trainee or, or, or experienced therapist to go and check out regardless of their approach. I found it very informative in, in terms of, it really changed my perspective of therapy in the sense that it became in my mind less of a job to be done as a process to be shared. I think yes, yes. a paradigm mm -hmm. shift for me that, that motivational interviewing really drove home for me. But maybe on a, on a last point, Dr. Miller, um, you mentioned a couple of books of yours that are due to come out. Uh, do you want to share the details of those so that if anybody who's interested in picking those up can, can look out for them? The first is called Effective Psychotherapists. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is the book about what is it that differentiates people who are better at therapy uh, or worse at, at therapy than others doing allegedly the same kind of treatment. So, and I, as I said, I think those characteristics also carry over to teaching and leadership and many other areas besides. 
uh, and we, we found eight of them in the psychotherapy literature. And the other one, which will be out in just a couple of weeks, um, the title is On Second Thought. On Second Thought, uh, How Ambivalence Shapes Your Life. And I, I wind up, not, not to spoil the ending, but I wind up concluding ambivalence is a virtue. It's not, not something to be avoided or can't or could be avoided even, uh, and not to be fought against, stamped out or whatever. Um, but a normal part of human experience and a really interesting and important one that affects all kinds of things in our lives. Those are the two most recent ones. I'll be sure to pick up the second one. I, I think you mentioned the first one in an email correspondence and it's very effective marketing on your behalf because then I went out and ordered the book straight away. So I'm looking forward to reading that when it comes. And uh, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Miller. It's been a real pleasure. And, and thank you for sharing this word in Malaysia. That's amazing to me. You've been listening to the Empowering Lives Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Psychology at HELP University, Malaysia, the University of Achievers. For more information about HELP University, visit www.help.edu.my and learn about our world-class programs and mental health services. Thank you for listening. And remember, together we can empower each other to build rich and meaningful lives driven by purpose, vision, and values.